On this episode of Gridlock Break, we're hearing from Dr. Omar Latif, CEO of Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Dr. Latif offers a unique perspective on both the medical and financial strains that coronavirus is already putting on his hospital system. He'll walk us through the latest information on the disease and what his hospital is doing to combat it. Let's jump in. It's my pleasure and honor to introduce Dr. Omar Latif, Chief Executive Officer of Rush University Medical Center. Rush was established in 1837, that's two days before the city of Chicago was founded, but now provides some of the most cutting edge clinical and community care in the nation. I'll break down this short introduction of Dr. Latif into two parts, uh, Omar's credentials and his exceptional and unique approach to healthcare. Dr. Latif assumed his role as CEO of Rush recently in May of last year. Previously, he served as chief medical officer, vice chair of the Department of Internal Medicine, and a director of the medical intensive care unit. He's also a professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine. Under Dr. Latif's leadership, Rush Medical Center was ranked by Vizient, the nation's largest healthcare performance improvement company, as number one in quality and safety. That's first among 93 of our nation's top academic health systems in the country. He is recognized as a national leader in data management and in measurement of healthcare uh, information, working to ensure that measurements are transparent, measure what they are intended to gauge, and don't have unintended consequences. This work has profoundly impacted how healthcare is delivered, viewed, and reported not only at Rush, but across the country. And it's particularly relevant at this time when we really need to understand the numbers, the trends, the treatments, the curves, and the strategies. Dr. Latif has published extensively on scientific and ethical issues related to critical care medicine. I printed out the list of his publications and had to refill my printer tray twice (laughs) to get them all done. Nationally and in Chicago, but most importantly at Rush, Dr. Latif is one of the strongest and most respected physician leaders in medicine. I am not alone in viewing him as one of the smartest, most dedicated, most articulate and humane medical centers CEO around. You'll hear today about the early and large scale preparations Rush made to contend with the COVID COVID pandemic. In a matter of weeks, Dr. Latif and his team have completely reorganized a major urban medical center operationally and physically to contend with the spike of cases we anticipate in the coming weeks. Dr. Latif has done this with great calm, competence, organizational skills, and compassion. I thank Dr. Latif for carving out time to speak to this group particularly during this crisis when there are so many demands on them. Dr. Latif. Well, thank you uh, for having us. And I brought um, a world-renowned epidemiologist with me, Dr. Mike Lynn um, from Infectious Disease, who um, will make this interactive and uh, will answer uh, quite a few questions um, as they come up near the end. Thanks for that introduction, Susan. It's really an honor and a privilege uh, to present this. 
Um, I guess I'll just get started. Uh, we're all getting used to Zoom, and so I uh, apologize for any potential technological gaps if they come up. Uh, a little bit on just the, the kind of the beginning is uh, coronavirus started in Wuhan, China in December of 2019. These are when the first reported cases were traced back to. It's the most common symptom of coronavirus, which is not a new virus to us in healthcare. It's really the same virus that causes the common cold. This is a, a unique strain of the virus. It has symptoms of fever, tiredness, and a dry cough. Some patients have aches and pains, nasal congestion, runny nose, throat, or diarrhea. But in a small percentage of patients, roughly 10 to 15, it can result in uh, pneumonia. That pneumonia can actually become very severe and actually fatal. It's spread by respiratory droplets and on surfaces. So this is when you sneeze, the droplets that actually come out. And on surfaces, on anything that a person would touch that would have the respiratory droplets on them. Most estimates of words that you'll hear a lot that you've seen in the press around incubation time really range from anywhere between one and 14 days, and it's most commonly around five days. That's what makes this particularly challenging. A person could be walking around with some symptoms and be infected for quite a long time. So if a disease is really infective and has an incubation period of three days, it's much easier to control. Even if you wanted to put people away in a home and say, don't infect anybody else, you're looking at three days versus two weeks which is a lot easier for society at large. This is really just a brief orientation of what the COVID virus is, and we'll talk a little more about how that's impactful and how this is unique and presents a unique challenge as we move on. A lot of people compare COVID to the flu, and this is an unfortunate comparison for a variety of reasons. It's really an apples to oranges comparison. The one thing they have in common is they're both infectious diseases. But you can see on the graph to the left, flu here, really is, has a fatality of young people of less than 1%. And as you get elderly, it approaches 1%. COVID-19 has a mortality rate 15 times that, 15 times that in the elderly population. And when you go even to the less elderly population, four times that. This is a markedly more fatal disease than the flu. And while you can look at numbers and look at how they're presented and calculated, data can be misleading. The bottom line is we are seeing a monumental increase in spread of this disease with a higher mortality than the flu. So when people compare it to the flu, my only caveat or caution and our only caveat from a medical perspective is this is very different from the flu. It is much more virulent and it has much worse outcomes. Those have been proven. The other thing that makes this unique is a concept that we'll talk about more and Dr. Lin can talk about, which is called herd immunity or generalized immunity. The flu does not spread with the same epic proportion as a novel virus spread. When we use the word novel, we mean new to society. And it being new to society, it means nobody has an internal protection against it. So that makes it markedly more contagious. And when it gets into the community, because it's so contagious to me, everybody I come into, I, risk the, I run the risk of spreading to as well. So that contagiousness is hypervigilant compared to the contagiousness of the flu, where many people are vaccinated and many people have had symptoms in the past and partial or herd immunity to. The bottom line is this is very different than the flu. This next slide you've seen 
if you've opened up a newspaper or undoubtedly watched any news, and this comes out of Johns Hopkins University and is updated daily, this is a remarkable piece of work which just shows the global incidence of this. We've all given many presentations trying to encourage people to take this seriously from a medical perspective all over the city, state, and the country recently. When we update our presentation, this is a scary slide to update because even three days ago, this looked nothing like it looks today. We all believed that this disease originated in China, which it did, and here is a cluster, which is bright red. A week and a half ago, the United States of America had dots, similar to South America. Now, North America, you see this look exactly like Wuhan and look exactly like China. Europe and the United States are now dramatically impacted by this, and what you see to the left are the number of cases in the United States overwhelmingly leading the world in its incidence. Just a week ago, we were third. If you go back prior to that, in the end of January, we were talking about one to two cases spreading in this country. So that tells you the rate and proportional growth that this has had in our community. And the reality is this increase is still being reported in just about every city in America, with some cities increasing at a markedly higher rate. And we'll talk about those rates also in a few minutes. I'm gonna take a minute to talk about a curve that I am positive you are tired of looking at. This is a curve that shows the goals of containment and mitigation, and this is adapted from the Center of Disease Control, the Center for Disease Control or the CDC. This first bump or hill shows what happens in any novel outbreak, an outbreak where society is not ready for it, and you bring in a new infection. You dramatically increase the number of cases until there's enough people infected, they start to recover, and it starts to go down as all those infected start to go away, and then it comes down. This orange line on the graph is the most important line that you're gonna see from the purposes of ours working from a healthcare perspective. This shows healthcare capacity. In an epidemic, you can overcome. Our healthcare system is built on average numbers that we see every year. To sustain ourselves as a business model, we treat what we need to treat based on the numbers that come in the year before. We don't plan and have beds for an international pandemic. And so one of the ways to, to make sure that you don't pass this line is the phrase that you heard is bend the curve or to go from this line to this line or this other hill that you see here. And what that means is if you prevent the spread of the disease, you can slow down the progression so that even though you'll have a progression, you'll keep that underneath the healthcare capacity line. Now you're starting to see images from developed countries in the world that look worse than historical third world images from healthcare. If you've seen pictures from Milan, you've seen what happens when you extend beyond healthcare capacity. Milan is here. It's still moving up. They have not yet started their downtrend in cases. Now, there's one day or two days where you're starting to see the impact of mitigation and containment. So the way to get from this graph to this graph so that cities in the United States do not look like Milan, which, and we'll be honest about has already happened to some cities where they've overpassed or they've stretched beyond the healthcare capacity is to practice containment and mitigation. And what containment means is if you know this virus lives for 14 days 
and you took every single person in the world and put them in a bubble with enough food and water for 14 days where nobody can leave, this virus would play itself out. There would be no more spread, right? So that is containment. You contain it by putting everybody in a bubble. If you've already have spread, then we use the word mitigate to say, all right, you may have already broken containment, but prevent further spread by stopping things, by practicing social distancing, travel restrictions. Travel is really how you bring it in from one area to another. Imagine for a moment that New York recovers in two to three months, but we see an upsurge in another city and people from that city start visiting New York. Then you'll see another bump happen. And that's the fear that infectious disease doctors are spreading all over the world is that second, third or fourth bump that can happen is people travel. So over to the right, you see hand washing, social distancing, travel restrictions, visitor restrictions, and isolation. And when you do this, you can shift from this graph to this graph. Now, this slide is being shown by the CDC has widely considered an academic exercise. When you're in training all over this country and you're an infectious disease doctor, you present this graph as one of your slides and you talk about how great this is and, and it's a theoretical model. The problem or the reality is the theoretical model can actually be overlaid on the reality of the world and our world experience. And what you're seeing here is the flu epidemic of 1918. And while I'm sure you've heard about this before, I'd like to present this to prove to you that this can actually look like this and we can choose which bump we wanna be. So here in this tall peak, you see exponential growth of the flu in Philadelphia. Philadelphia did not cancel a celebratory parade for World War I. And that parade brought thousands of people out in the streets after the epidemic was declared and people knew this disease was spreading. St. Louis decided we we're going to shut down the city, contain and mitigate, close all public parks and all public activities and restaurants and truly shut down the environment. This is the actual recorded death and number of infected people. This is the infection rate per population. So it's adjusted per population in Philadelphia. And this is in St. Louis. Four days after the parade in Philadelphia, 4,500 deaths occurred and every hospital bed was filled in that city. St. Louis went on to recovery and it's only 900 miles away with the same potential spread. And so that's the reality of what can be done with containment and mitigation strategy. So I'm gonna take you from that and show you a picture of the O'Hare Airport and I don't have a source for this because every time I try to find a source, the same picture would pop up. It's what we would call, to use a bad expression right now, a viral photograph taken from O'Hare on Sunday, on Saturday, March 14th. So this is after reported cases are in the community in the city of Chicago. This is O'Hare. We mentioned earlier that this disease spreads by respiratory droplets and contact. So take any one person in this picture here and go six feet forward, six feet to the side, six feet behind and draw a circle around that person, right? This is also the highest risk group, people returning from Europe and the Far East coming back to America in this terminal for what was described in various news articles as between two and six hours of waiting. 
So in that period, you put the high-risk people exposed with a virus of a 14-day incubation period. This is a picture taken around the same weekend of spring break in headline news. If you go to YouTube and you type in spring break, you will see pictures as recently as four days ago that have a similar impact. You know, so I show you that video um, to highlight on that same weekend what's actually happening in the environment um, around. And so I'll take you from that video in this picture of the O'Hara Airport to this. And this again is, I would ask you, can you predict the curve based on pictures of where our city is going to be? So what this shows right here is Philadelphia, right? And so if you see that picture of a large celebration or of a, of a giant celebration, the belief is that you'll have the same spread Philadelphia had. And if you go to a city that practice extreme containment or mitigation, the belief is that city will look like St. Louis did. And so when you talk about what's happening right now in the United States of America, there are cities that went full blown after there was community spread with large gatherings. And those are cities where it was an academic prediction a week ago of what might happen. But you're starting to see them proven to be hotspots with massive spread. That's predictable based on the fact that we knew it existed in the environment. You can look at the date of the event, be it Mardi Gras, be it a funeral in a, in a town, or be it a church service that brought together thousands of people and actually trace back super spreader events to those communities. And those are communities that are now passing that curve of their healthcare capacity. And so that curve, so if we don't successfully contain or mitigate this infection, there's three things that we have the very real potential of running out of. Beds, supplies, and staff. And so when we talk about beds, supplies, and staff, these are the three needs in every country in every city in the world that people are worried about right now. This is your healthcare capacity. If you have the right number of beds, but you don't have the right personal protective equipment, you can't keep your staff safe. They will become infected and be furloughed and unable to care for people. If you don't have the right number of ventilators, you could potentially lose patients we would have easily been able to save had we had the right technology handy. That is actually, as an issue of fact happening in Milan as we write this and speak today. There are patients that were salvageable that don't have access to a ventilator. If you don't have the right staff or the right number of people to help care for patients, even if you have technology, at the end of the day, you can't utilize that technology. This being a, a new disease, right, is actively knocking out staff at a significant rate so that hospitals are finding it hard to get the right number of people to the front line. And we're seeing this all over the world, now in the United States, in a, just about every state, and now in Chicago. So it's a very real reality. So I'll take you through that to tell you a little bit about changes that we've done in one hospital, Rush University Medical Center, but we can say with a source of pride or in many hospitals all over this country. We have a phenomenal healthcare system in the United States of America in terms of technology and the ability to utilize and push the envelope and provide heroic care. The question we have now is how much of that phenomenal capability can we offer our society that needs it? And so what we've done is we looked at our hospital and three weeks ago said, and now almost four weeks ago said, 
If we needed to change our entire hospital and no longer function in the day-to-day operation, but just take care of the immediate need of our city, of our state, and of our country, what would it look like? And we realize that is having a different physical capacity. So that physical capacity is we need more beds. We will identify, optimize, expand physical spaces. And it's not just regular beds. We need critical care beds. We need a unique kind of bed to maximize and optimize that technology. We need staffing. I I think uh, I may not be on mute on somebody's phone, so there's some feedback. I apologize. So with staffing, staffing is a real issue. We've staffed additional units with providers, nursing and respiratory therapists, support services, and for anticipating staff outages with COVID. So this means we've gotten together for weeks and put lists together of who the next people up. Let's assume we knock out a whole wing of employees. Who else can staff this unit? What is the right type of person to work in the right type of space? And how do we juggle all of those different pieces? And so while we're dramatically increasing the physical capacity, we can also increase the staff to go with it. And then the third was equipment and supplies. Really, this is identifying critical resources like ventilators, beds, personal protective equipment and medications, and not stockpiling this in case of an emergency. We're full all into an emergency. And so how do we get this to our organization as soon as possible? And the last thing is optimizing our in-house capacity. This is a painful reality for every hospital that you're all affiliated with all over the country. Really what generates revenue are elective surgeries, office visits. These are the drivers of the healthcare system. We made a decision early on that we wouldn't be able to be ready if we continued our normal operations. So we shut this down. And when we shut this down, that allowed us to basically, we looked at all our space, wide open space here. We looked at all our beds and we put them all in a place and said, all right, how do we take our hospital as it is today ignore all government regulations around how much, how many beds you need, how many dishes you need. All of those things require some bureaucracy and said, ignore all that. It's basically a wartime. And what could we turn this institution into? And we repurposed everything. All our hospital right now has single rooms. Now every room is a double room. We took post our operating room areas and we not only set them up in case we would take care of patients, we put the equipment in those rooms like other hospitals in the country that are as that are just that are that are filled with heroes and we said let's turn these rooms into actual patient rooms so that if this surge comes is predicted to Chicago we will have a bed and the technology assigned to put those people in it this is a picture right here of what we called our Brennan pavilion which is a pavilion that is really just a beautiful and iconic place to come and congregate and it's the entry level to our hospital it is now the, the chairs that were in patients' rooms, we removed and put there and made an overflow emergency room in. And we did all this to effectively dramatically increase our capacity to take care of patients. And so we built the institution and we physically transformed it to look like this. And then for Chicago, the other thing we did is we made more changes. And so just to paint a picture of this, and many of you are affiliated with hospitals in some capacity. If you want to change the operations of one floor in one wing of a hospital, we typically have a lot of meetings, look at the pros and cons and how this impacts workflow and what happens. And it could take six months to make a small change. We made in three weeks 
a dramatically different hospital. And then what we did was we made a different emergency room and then we bought and acquired tents to make different testing facilities. So we have a COVID walk-in clinic, a COVID drive-through clinic, and then we took our ambulance bay and we put tents in it and we made that a treatment area and a diagnostic area for COVID so we can separate patients out. And we built new ICUs, full service ICUs, not rooms with some equipment, actual ICU rooms that could leverage the technology that this country has with volunteer physicians or anybody we can find to staff in those and offer that level of care. Then we took the technology and started doing virtual visits. We said, don't come to the hospital if you, if you don't need to. Call us up through our app. We'll treat you over the phone through a video visit. And we waived all the cost of those visits. Finally, all of this is based on models. And if you're anything like us, you're probably tired of all the models that exist. At the end of the day, the models right now throughout the country show an increasing rate. What we've done is we took our models and an analytics team and we put this calculator online. We made it free and open source and we share it with our, all our colleagues. What this model allows you to do is look at the numbers that are happening released by the city, state, and federal government, and then look, type in your hospital resources, and it'll tell you when you're going to run out of equipment. What is the number of beds you need? What is the number of supplies you need? This is using data to drive decision making. And this is what we've done here in Chicago for us. So we've ramped up under the assumption that these models are right. We hope that the models are wrong. We hope that mitigation and containment works. We did not factor that into the model. We assume it's not gonna work so that in the worst case scenario, we would be overprepared instead of underprepared and be turning patients away from ventilators. And we're trying to do that with our colleagues in the city and in the state. And we're working together to take those silos down. I'm gonna finish with this as the last slide, which is to talk for a moment about critical care and why it's so different and so important. This disease, which is, a, a bad, which is really a viral pneumonia and a percentage of people, when it, when it impacts you, it makes it very hard to get oxygen into a person's body. So the specialized units in hospitals are critical care units, and that's where these patients tend to go. Right now at our facility, we have 49 patients in ICUs that are on breathing machines and that right now, as I'm talking to you, are upside down or prone. What we know is not every hospital in the country has this number of ventilators and not every hospital in the country, in fact, very few can prone you. Proning means we take a person and we flip them over upside down so that they're lying on their stomach. And the reason we do that is when you have pneumonia, which is filled with fluid and pus in your lungs, it collects with gravity on the bottom of your lungs and the blood supply to your lungs travels with gravity too. So we're sending blood to the areas of our lungs that are not useful. When we turn somebody over, gravity immediately pulls the blood to the other part of the lungs that are relatively spared. And so we can now get oxygen into your body. Now that only works for six hours. After about six hours, all that fluid and pus travels back down and you have the same problem. So now you have to flip somebody back over again. Just to be clear, this is something that requires four to five people inside the room, two to three people outside the room, respiratory therapists, nurses wearing specialized protective equipment that we already don't have enough of 
in the room each time. It's a heroic act being done all over New York City right now, all over Chicago and in Seattle, that we talk about a little bit because it's a very specialized medical approach. But the reality is, this is the reason the most advanced medical centers in the cities all over this country need to optimize their critical care abilities. Because we can do this just like our partner hospitals are teaching us work in other cities. The other technique I'd show here is a word called ECMO, E-C-M-O, or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, which is a, a fancy word for an external heart-lung machine. This is a big machine that sits outside a person's body. We put a large cannula into one blood vessel, another cannula into another. We run all their blood through this machine. The machine fills their blood up with oxygen. So if your lungs are totally useless, this machine can function as your lungs for a couple of weeks if we need to and let your body recover, let your lungs recover. And to do these techniques, you need a very unique provider mentality. The mentality has to be of your ICU, of your critical care unit, of your hospital at large, these are the patients that we're going to take care of. These are high-risk patients that are knocking out healthcare workers, and we are putting people in a room to flip them over upside down. Tubes get dislodged, wires get unclogged all the time when this happens because it's a complicated technique. At the end of the day, we're with the same three limitations of beds, supplies, and staff, and this is the fear we have all over the country. If we don't successfully mitigate and contain this disease, we won't be able to offer this type of care to the people that need it most. This type of care saves lives. We know is an issue of fact with people with this disease. We need to be able to use it for everybody that needs it and will run out of these materials and the staff and the beds to do it if we don't continue with mitigation techniques. So with that, I'll open it up for us to talk about any questions you may have. So I have a question. It's, uh, this is Bob Zeidman. Um, I've been getting uh, uh, notices from companies that I uh, believe to be legitimate through contacts of mine that they have supplies of KN95 masks from China. And I'm wondering if that's useful. And if so, who do I contact about connecting them? Yeah, so there's not a day that goes by where we don't get about 15 to 20 of those. Uh, and so we chase down everyone. And uh, the contact could, could be me. My email is omar underscore latif at rush.edu. I'll email that or, or, or send that in to this group. If you send that to me, I'll make sure it gets to the right place. It's gotten to the point where I'll take my personal money and drive and meet a guy with a truck to get this, these masks for our staff because it's such an emotional and heart-wrenching issue for our staff here. We're seeing it from our colleagues and mentors in New York City who've seen it in Seattle, and we haven't done a good job of taking those lessons from one city to another. The reality is the, the cost of a mask on average is between 40 and 70 cents. We're getting quoted costs of $10 a mask right now. Um, and then we're, we're being told to come up when we chase these down, many of these are give us the money now and we'll get you the masks in 14 days. We need the masks today. But if a person has a truck of masks, we'll, I'll go meet them at the, at the rest area and pick up the masks myself. We're, this is a real thing for us, and it's an emotional thing for us. So I appreciate the offer. Email me. 
I have a question, Marshall, if you don't mind. Ron, yeah, please. Up in Boston. Um, you know, you got a lot of people on this call who have resources. If there was one, two, or three things that we could do to actually help in a real way with this PPE issue, what would it be? And what would you say to us if we were sitting around a, a kitchen table? Great thing, Mike. Well, this is specific to PPE, right? And again, this is Mike Lynn. Thank you all for, for the questions. I think that, you know, Omar said it best, though. I think it comes to beds, supplies, and staff. And we control the first and the third, but the supplies are an issue. I think that the, the face masks and the respirators you've probably seen in the news are the ones that do tend to run short. We tend to be able to reuse other things like goggles, and the contact gowns and gloves seem to be in, in better supplies. So I think it's a matter of really harnessing whatever manufacturing capacity there is in our country to be able to get these quickly. I think that yeah. is important. I think number one, overwhelmingly, we would love to have N95 masks. If we could get N95 masks, they would be delivered to our hospital, to the Boston hospitals, to NYU. Like iconic doctors there treating 81 vents right now today as we're writing, being nervous about supplies. Right now, my fear is that I have staff today that's nervous about their job that doesn't feel protected. So the N95 masks, real contacts that could deliver them for real. And, you know, at the end, we're in medicine, right? Many of the most of the administrators across this country come from a medical background. We're trusting. I spend a lot of time chasing down each one of these leads. The last one from yesterday said if I can forward $10 million, they would ship masks. So this is where we're at. So the unmet need really is honest brokers develop, set up the, get the mask to the healthcare system because we just honestly don't have the time to play a supply chain game. And that's the more hit the city is, the worse the number of fraudulent asks that are being hit to hospitals. And we're spending a lot of resources and time chasing each one down. We've had this with 3D printing where people have said, I can 3D print new masks. And, and then I spend a day looking through that. And, you know, or last night I was up for about four hours chasing down various leads. And, you know, by around three in the morning, we realized these were people that were going to buy a 3D printing machine if we, once we gave the contract. And so, I think the unmet need for sure is with personal protective equipment. We need to get in the hands of the right people, personal protective equipment. The second ask is there's a lot of disconnection in healthcare in America, and this may shock all of you. Um, we we uh, Hospitals compete against one another. We don't historically open the silos and say, let's function as a single healthcare community. So to the extent that the people and influencers sit on various boards, say, let's share information, share data, it can't be I caught a fish and it's this big and everybody's talking about how much incredible work they're doing in stockpiling supplies. What we need are the right supplies going to the right place without a bureaucracy. And that, to, to the extent that hospitals can work together with local and state governments would be incredibly helpful. So the leadership of the state needs to take the lead from the healthcare leaders, and that can't be a political process. And the honest ask that I have is the fear that I have is if is that this is somehow mired in politics. The hospitals that are seeing patients need to get supplies, not the hospitals that have been well positioned for years in different advocacy groups. And that's not me talking, that's from partners in New York 
that I admire and look up to and see the heroic work they're doing every day. And so they need to get the supplies. We need to get the supplies and stuff like that. And my partners in Chicago need those supplies. This is really a family. So those are our two big needs. Question, for, not for staff, but just an individual who is socially separating, but going out. Uh, there seems to be a controversy over whether masks do any good. You're not symptomatic. Is there advantages or disadvantages to actually wearing a mask? That's a great question. So um, this has been a point of controversy in the media. I think, um, and in fact, the CDC, from what I understand, is re-looking at this issue again, because as you've seen, there are other countries, for example, in Asia, who have really taken to part the idea of being able to mask people in the public. I would say that there are a lot of limitations to public masking. Um, one is you do have to wear the mask correctly. And um, sometimes we see people wearing the mask just over their mouth and not covering the nose. You see them pulling it up and down as they're going through the day. All that touching, if you're actually someone who's contagious, can actually contaminate that mask on the outside, contaminate your hands, and kind of defeat the purpose of trying to contain uh, the virus. I think there are two specific instances in which it does make sense to wear a mask. One is if you are sick, and for some reason you have to leave the house to go somewhere. Of course, we're not recommending that. That mask does help you to contain your virus and not spread it. Two, if you're at home and you're caring for somebody who's sick, you're well, but the person you're caring for is sick, you can wear a mask to protect yourself, again, as a barrier from that sick person to you. Uh, but it's very controversial about general mask wearing in the public just because there isn't a lot of evidence out there that on a mask scale it helps. And as you've already heard with the shortages of masks, in the hospital setting, it's very difficult to make that trade-off and say, everyone go wear a mask and then generate an artificial shortage for our healthcare workers. So I think, um, I guess the long and short of it is people have talked about that. I think in the perfect world, if we had plenty of masks, we would say, yeah, sure, you know, it, it probably is okay. But I think the reality is we, we can't just go out and say that right now. And the evidence is very uncertain. Thank you again for, for joining us. Uh, yesterday, we were fortunate enough to have Dr. Van, uh, Von Eschenbach, used to be with the uh, FDA, uh, talk to us. And we talked a little bit about uh, the alternative medications that have been talked about in the media um, and uh, amongst some health professionals and the efficacy of the hydroxychloroquine or in, com in combination with ZPAC. And I'm wondering if you, if you and your hospital or through your uh, uh, discussions with other physicians uh, have an opinion as to how that should be, how that should be handled and should that be more widely used in this case? Yeah, this is a challenge with the COVID-19 pandemic is that there really isn't an evidence base for what kind of treatments are effective. As you may know, the gold standard for deciding whether or not a treatment is effective is to randomize patients to receiving that treatment versus placebo and to blind people, both the patient and also the person giving the medication so that there's no bias. And, and that's the gold standard for trying to decide is a therapy effective. Otherwise, um, anything short of that, really you start to worry about bias. I can tell you that for the particular medications that you mentioned, the hydroxychloroquine and the azithromycin, that's something that was talked about extensively. Uh, that came from some observational studies where one hospital was using it and it seemed to work and they compared themselves to 
another hospital, another group of hospitals where it wasn't being used. And you can already guess, like when you start to compare one hospital to another, it's very hard to control other factors that are unique or different about one hospital versus another. So um, it's an observational study then. Is it the drug? Is it something else related to the hospital that made the patients better in one setting versus another? You really can't tease it out. And so we are participating in clinical trials. It's so important to be able to answer these questions. Uh, we're fortunate to have experience participating in clinical trials. Many hospitals across the country do as well. And these are really critical answers that need to be found. I think, yeah, and I think I would add to that. Um, it, the, one of the limitations that we have in healthcare right now is, is data utilization and how do we use data. And it's a limitation because in six months to a year, we're going to know exactly what ventilator settings to put these patients on, what medicines, what order, what are the protocols for treating a COVID patient with pneumonia day one, day two, day three. We'll take the data and we'll have no shortage of articles that are going to come out in every peer-reviewed journal, the New England Journal of Medicine, Lancet, JAMA, the British Medical Journal. Every journal is going to come out and say, this is how we treat this disease. Part of the problem that's happening right now is it's happening in real time. The numbers of this are growing exponentially in the world, and you've seen this doubling in the United States in just a couple of days. So that creates a desire to get answers to questions before we have the data or the trial of making all things equal and trying drug regimen A versus drug regimen B. That will happen, but that does unfortunately take time. The other reality is we know that a lot of patients on what we call traditional supportive care get better. Like, and because they're getting better, that confuses it, makes it harder to know if the medicine is what made them better or if they would have gotten better on their own. And so that's a complex way of saying exactly what Dr. Fauci said was, I would take those medicines as part of a clinical trial, but I myself would not call them a wonder or miracle drug at this point. I think the good news is that there's been relaxation on the part of the regulatory agencies throughout the world in just about every country saying, get these studies done as soon as you can and share this information. The bad news is what would be great for me is to have a list of 87,000 patients in China. Who, what, what did they look like? And this is what happened. And this is what they did. So the patients that got this type of ventilation, uh, you know, benefited, these ones didn't. That data may or may not exist, but we don't have access to it. We need to be able to freely share information, make it open source that we can all learn from one another. Right now, we have an experience in Seattle that was translated, and now we have a different experience in New York and an experience in Chicago, right? We need to learn from those centers that are two weeks jump start on us to say, teach us what's happening. Now is not the time in healthcare for ego. Now is the time to say, tell me what you would do differently if you can go back in time. Rush was able to build a plan to surge because we asked people that got hit without preparation time, what would they do differently? So we copied off of giants in the field, and our hope is that other hospitals do the same thing. We're not breaking any new territory. We're learning from the lessons of scholars, and that, that pertains to medication, so we'll use Every medication, we are already in the clinical trials and we'll do every, no one's going to die a rush without a trial of a medication. This is a question for either or both doctors. I was really struck 
by your emphasis on the N95 respirator masks, because what I'm hearing from elected officials and some medical people in other places is that the looming ventilator shortage is equally important, and particularly for the for the oldest and most vulnerable patients. Uh, your hospital, your center looked very well equipped with ventilators just by visual inspection, and you didn't mention it as an issue, but but based on what you're hearing, how big is it an issue uh, around the country? So, uh, yeah, I hope I didn't. Um, I, I don't want to leave people with the impression that ventilators aren't a concern. So I appreciate your question. My overarching, so we have an immediate need, right? We need masks more than we need ventilators today. Like right now, today, at our, at our institution, at the institutions I know of. I am not sitting in New York, where, but New York right now does have ventilators. They're predicting based on their model, they'll pass that orange line, which is their resources. Part of those resources are ventilators. Italy has run out of ventilators. There are no ventilators. And because of that, patients that would have been saved will actually die. And the reality is if you don't have that level of care to offer, Right, they're gonna be, and so right now we're hearing reports of these unbelievably phenomenal physicians saying, if you're over 80, just stay at home, right? Like we can't admit you right now. So the United States is not at a point today right now where we're hearing, or to my knowledge, I know of a hospital that because they don't have ventilators, can't adequately treat a patient. I can tell you that based on the model in certain cities, they are predicting they will run out, right? And so that's why you're hearing various governors saying, send us ventilators, we need them now. What that has to be measured against is our models don't have the impact of mitigation and containment built into it. So we're assuming the worst in every model. If those containment measures help, that will bend the curve below the resource line. The other reality I'll tell you is that we're not foolish enough to think that ventilators can come tomorrow. I think it's easier to make a mask than a ventilator, right? So I think that's what drove sort of my ask. But if someone has ventilators, we're not saying no. We've gone to the educational institutions of the city and said, let us have your extra ones for teaching. We're, we're crowdsourcing as many ventilators as we can. That's a real concern in the models in New York City. What we're seeing is if containment doesn't work, they'll run out of ventilators. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, quick question from Glenn in Houston. Um, first, thank you, doctors. Um, second, do you have a source of public information that you listen to or read every day for credible updates? I think this is one of the, I, I appreciate that question. This is probably the most unique challenge for us during this pandemic is, Social media, the, the, the introduction of social media, the introduction of general media, and the reports that are coming out unvalidated or validated. So there's not a day that goes by where someone doesn't tell me we heard this was cured or that this was, you know, if you drink vodka, then this can be wiped out or hard alcohol. And we know that that led to mortalities in Iran because people believe that drinking alcohol and that was spread on a popular online social media post. I will say the trusted source of information for us, and I'll let Mike comment on this, has been the CDC website, which is publicly available. 
the Johns Hopkins heat map, which is purely an issue, uh, purely a numerical representation of what's happening across the world. I trust that we're trusting the World Health Organization, the Center for Disease Control, the Infectious Disease Society of America are all publicly available sources of information that are written well and have like physician portals and non-physician portals of informational sources. That's to where we are turning for our information. And that's where I'd strongly recommend people on this uh, call re really return information. What I can tell you not to return to are Facebook posts that come out around 2.25 a.m. that say, you know, I got a cure with garlic mixed with cayenne pepper. Because my mother sent that to me this morning and said, if you just do this, you'll be fine. You don't have to worry about the math. Quick, quick question on the statistics. Um, how much of the rapidity of the increase is a result of the spread of the virus versus increased testing? Good question. Well, I think it's, it, the true answer is probably both. We know that the reproductive value of the virus, which is basically if you take one person, how many people would you predict would be infected by that first person, started off at over two. And you can see it would double very quickly with the over time. Yeah. So I think um, what we're seeing in the increase is, is real. I think that's reflected by hard numbers, by mortality. So that's, that's all real um, and hospital needs. Um, but uh, some of it is also testing because, um, you know, the U.S. unfortunately was woefully behind in terms of being able to supply enough testing. And I think we were severely undercounting early on. We're just starting to catch up. But really, even now, um, testing is reserved for people in whom it would change management, meaning the people who are coming to the hospital or have comorbidities that would make them at risk for worse outcomes. A great many of the people on this call support their local community hospitals or national research hospitals philanthropically. Could you comment on what this does, what this what this outbreak does to the financial well-being of the nation's healthcare system? Uh, are you is your balance sheet going to be a disaster after this, or is it unexpectedly a boon to you? Do you need the financial assistance that, that Congress just passed? Is that important to your survival? Just describe your economic model as a result of this pandemic, please. Mr. White, I, I appreciate the question at a whole different level. So, you know, I, my training was as a chief medical officer and um, I was really good at that. And um, Susan, who's on this phone, introduced me and, and mentioned that I'm the CEO, which apparently means I'm responsible for our financial output of 13,000 employees. The driving force of what supports our hospital are surgeries, elective surgeries, outpatient visits, these are the things that generate the revenue. Hospitals in America function on small margins. In the 90s, they made 20% margins in the early 90s, 10% margins in early 2000, 5% margins in 2005. Before COVID, one out of three hospitals was below zero on an operating margin in this country, depending on what various sources. Already, the margins were shaky. The positive things that hospitals historically do, we have stopped. There is no revenue driving the engine. This is not a boondoggle for healthcare. Doing this right is a dramatic cost against the bottom line of every hospital doing this in America. The things that generate revenue are gone. And what everybody is doing right now, the revenue that you're gaining from actually taking care of this patient is really a small, small, tiny part of what we otherwise would have made. And just to be clear, hospitals aren't what they historically 
once were where everybody was ranking in some kind of money. They're not like that. What, where we are today is losing millions of dollars in every hospital treating this disease a month, a week, and a day. And so the, the, the Congressional Act came out. It's incredibly complicated. It's thousands of pages. From our early reading, it offers some relief, potentially. How to get that relief, how to qualify, when that gets paid out is a concern. Days cash on hand is a concern across this country. There are county hospital systems that have two days cash on hand. You know, right now they're operating in a deficit and the fear is how do you pay back your own operation? And so the worst thing that you could imagine possibly happening in the stress of this entire moment is you're asking people to work above and beyond any normal call of duty they've ever had, taking care of an infectious disease. And oh, by the way, the reality is you may have to furlough employees if we can't figure out how to get revenue, not at Rush, I'm talking more broadly for healthcare in general. We are doing everything we possibly can to keep people going, but like every other business, this is a gigantic setback for the operating margins of healthcare institutions. The headline, one of the headlines today, um, doctors, was a prediction by uh, Dr. Fauci that there would be 100 to 200,000 deaths um, in the United States from this illness. And I'm wondering, do you have a sense of how that was calculated? Um, because to me, it would imply a, a, you know, an overall death rate, given that most of the population will, or let's say half the population gets infected of something well under 1%. Thank you. Yeah. So, we, so I didn't see that yet, but here's what I would say around these predictive models. It, there, was a there was a very prestigious epidemiologist from England that calculated if the United States doesn't do anything, we would have 2.2 million deaths. That's the number that was floating around Congress during the very first hearing that they had and some of the numbers that have been all over the media and press. That number came by looking at the graph I showed you that said this is a percent mortality in other countries in different age groups with the idea that this spreads to 2.4 people. So it was a mathematical model that said, if this number of people get infected and those same mortality numbers are applied to this population, this is the number of deaths you'll have. That number changes every day as the curve in each city in America changes. So we have right now, if you look in over say 171,000 or whatever the heat map shows by the end of the evening, 200,000 cases in America then we could say, if we know the ages of those cases, we could trace that to the likelihood of those patients having, uh, those patients bluntly dying, right? That, they're mathematical models that are taking those percentages we said for infected people and applying it to the number of growing. So what Dr. Fauci, I'm sure, has done is just looking at one of those models and saying, if this is the number of people being infected, this is where the direction is going. I believe containment and mitigation will impact us and he's adjusting for all those factors, he's coming up with that number off of that model. I would say this, there's probably not a more brilliant person in the country to look at and design those models or a person with more access to the right information to make that model than uh, Dr. Fauci. And if I could add, I think that number is one in which we can do something about and change yes. based on 
everything that we're doing with public health action, social distancing. And so it's not a static number. It's one that we actually can impact. Yeah, I think, you know, history is going to look back at this moment and there's going to be a lot of critics. One of the critics criticisms is going to be if this all works, that we overreacted. That's the weird part of this disease. If we overreact, then our numbers and preparation will be wrong. If we underreact, we'll look like Milan. Right. It's just an, it's a fact. Right. But overreacting means the longer we keep people away from one another and the more honest hand washing we can do, the actual overarching decrease in numbers we're going to have. So the World Health Organization made a couple strong comments. We still can collectively change the course of this disease. So it is entirely possible to make every one of those predictions wrong in a good way. Dr. Latif and his team are working tirelessly to treat each patient and find the resources they know they will need as this virus continues to spread. And he highlights the need for Washington to take more of a role in procuring essential equipment so 50 different states aren't competing against one another. Learn more about how No Labels is bringing together a coalition of leaders working on solutions during this unprecedented public health crisis at nolabels.org. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.